Hey there, it's Alex Steed, your your good co-host. We're going to get into the rest of the episode in a second. I just wanted to say right out the gate that if you have not seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, if you are not a Texas Chainsaw Massacre fan, if you're unlikely to watch this movie, stick around. This conversation is for you, I promise. We don't really get into the nitty gritty of kind of the grosser or unsettling things about this movie. It's like three people who are just stoked to share this thing that they love. It, like I said, if you're never going to see it, if you don't think you want to see it, totally fine. This conversation still works, I think. Of course, I'm a little biased, but I just want you to know that. Um, a couple other things. You Are Good is made possible by our community of You Are Good listeners, particularly folks who support via Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. There are bonus episodes over there uh, a couple of times a month. It's fun. We have a good time. So thank you so much to everyone who supports us over there. Thank you to Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K, which is a commercial and creative video content production company based in Portland, Maine. If you need video produced, the folks at Knack Factory are there for you. Get in touch with them. Knack Factory, K-N-A-C-K, Factory. Oh, we have playlists that accompany each of our episodes that come out every week. They're uh, inspired by the conversation and the movie and, you know, somewhere in between about the conversation, about the movie, whatever, whatever. But you can find it in uh, the show notes. So let's dive in. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular, Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young. But had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to You Are Good. Thank you so much for listening to our show about feelings in movies. Today we are talking about a movie that demonstrates the consequences of not saying you are good to yourself or anybody else. <laughs> this is a movie about family systems. Totally. It's a family movie. I said that on TikTok and people thought I was kidding. It's Family Feud. We're talking about the best episode <laughs> of Family Feud ever. There have been a handful of people who are like, all right, I'll watch it. And I'm like, no, all right, well, good luck. <laughs> most, like most of the time when people are like, all right, like, I'll, should I check it out? I'm like, sure, absolutely. And I feel that way, like mm -hmm. personally and spiritually about this movie. Yeah. But also where, where there are people who are like, I don't really like horror, but I'll check it out. I'm like, Ugh. it's like being like. And you're like, oh, no, <laughs> check this one out last. If you don't really, if you don't really like horror, you should watch. Uh, we probably even said this in the episode itself because I feel so strongly about it. If you don't really like horror, watch... Ready or not. Yes. If you don't really <laughs> like horror, watch Ready or Not because that's a great gateway to horror. And it's like all the fun parts and none of the like painfully repetitious and unskilled execution. Totally. Why is this a movie that I am uncomfortable suggesting people who are on the fence watch. Well, I mean, perhaps it's for the same reason that I'm uncomfortable with it, which is like, it's definitely one of my very favorite movies, like any category. It's my very favorite horror movie. I don't think anything has or probably will surpass it for me. How the scariness comes from something that I think is very true about humanity. All that stuff is very nice. But I also feel like when people know that about me, 
they might be like, what's the what's wrong with this lady? Like, is there something really wrong with this lady? And I'm like, yeah, but like, you know, in like a in a way that makes me direct all my darkness at myself, like you don't have to worry about it. But <laughs> yeah, totally. I, I feel that, too, where I'm like, I'm like, I, I unabashedly like this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Mm-hmm. And I I worry about what how someone interprets that. Yeah. I am not kidding. This is a fantastic movie. Mm -hmm. This is a great movie, but to be anybody who enthusiastically tells someone else, this is a great movie. It also doesn't do a great job of setting them up what they're in for. (laughs) Right. I feel like I recommend this movie the way that people recommend that psychedelic that you take that makes you throw up and shit yourself for hours. Oh, ayahuasca. Yeah. I love how we finish each other's sentences <laughs> about ready or not in ayahuasca. And they're all disgusting. Yeah. Because all our shared loves are gross in one way or another, which is great. And, you know, with ayahuasca, I feel like people are super enthusiastic about that. But like, you probably understand if someone has recommended that to you, like, okay, so like, maybe this is going to be a transformative experience. Maybe I'll like encounter something that's really meaningful to me and I'll be really glad that I did it, but I'm not going to have a good time. Like this is not going to be like a walk in the surf. Like this is going to be an experience. And that's what I think about this movie. Like it is an experience. I love it. And my love for it does not diminish the fact it is upsetting in a very existential way. And also it's filmmaking that makes you feel like grimy and sweaty and gross both physically and emotionally Mm. it does that better than anything else i've ever seen that's why it hits all these superlatives for me and we're joined by your friend first but someone who i love very much brad bannon and like we have three people who's who are talking about their favorite movie and are just excited to be talking to each other and like the whole premise of the show is that you are good Obviously, you listener are good. I am good. You are good. We are good. But also to me, there's something very special about discussing this movie with like you, a mensch, and Brad, a mensch, like truly one of the menschiest menches I've ever met. Yeah, Brad. Oh, God, Brad is Brad's lovely. I'm glad that we had this originally two hours. I don't know what it's getting cut down to, but we had this this very lively chat with a very lively fan. Yeah, I'm, ex- I'm so excited for this episode, partly because I love this movie so much and uh, partly because I, I loved this conversation so much. And then also partly because I love that we're doing what we tried to do with the Saw, the Saws episode that we did with Jamel so many months ago now. Where to me, like that episode, I, you know, never apologize to me for not watching a movie I love because like to each their own. And if you can't get your head around watching the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, then like, that's great. We made this for you. Like now you can hear what it's about and what happens in it and the ethical implications of all, <laughs> all of it. Um, and this can be, you know, you're a substitute for actually watching the movie because like yeah it is not for everyone yes yes absolutely do you have any uh do you have any departing feels before we uh we jump in let's go eat some seitan
Grave robbing in Texas is this hour's top news story. An informant led officers of the Muerto County Sheriff's Department to a cemetery just outside the small rural Texas community of Butte early this morning. Officers there discovered what appeared to be a grisly work of art, the remains of a badly decomposed body wired to a large monument. A second body was found in a ditch near the perimeter of the cemetery. Subsequent investigation has revealed at least a dozen empty crypts, and it's feared war will turn up as the probe continues. Deputies report that in some instances, only parts of a corpse have been removed, the head or in some cases the extremities removed, the remainder of the corpse left intact. Evidence indicates the robberies have occurred. The film which you are about to see is an account of the tragedy which befell a group of five youths, in particular Sally Hardesty and her invalid brother, Franklin. It is all the more tragic in that they were young, but had they lived very, very long lives, they could not have expected, nor would they have wished, to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see that day. For them, an idyllic summer afternoon drive became a nightmare. The events of that day were the lead discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. <laughs> Outstanding. August 18th, 1973. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. How do you do? Oh, it's a rare occasion that we cover a movie that all three of the people are equally as elated about this has never happened before i feel like honestly <laughs> what are we diving into sarah i don't know why we always do this because if you read the title you know but i'll tell you anyway we are discussing the texas chain saw massacre forward title no bones about it <laughs> <laughs> aka leatherface aka head cheese head cheese <laughs> it's a great time this is such a gigantic favorite movie of mine. It's a favorite movie of yours. Mm -hmm. It's a favorite movie of who else, Sarah? It's a favorite movie of our guest of the hour, Brad Bannon. Hello, Brad. Hello, Sarah. Hello, Alex. No one can see it, but Brad's wearing a really great Leatherface shirt and it's in, it like looks kind of like a tourist shirt that you'd get from like Austin and like the sun is setting yes. in a really beautiful way, but it's like a graphic designy sun and uh, Leatherface has his chainsaw up above his head. He's doing the little hustle from the end of the movie. It looks great. Brad, Brad, you look great. Thank you so much. <laughs> Before we dive into the synopsis of the movie, tell us about this movie in your life. Well, I am a gigantic horror movie fan. It is certainly my favorite genre of film. And I, you know, was born in 1970, a few years before this movie was released. And I grew up in the 80s. So I'm extremely partial to 70s and 80s horror. And interestingly enough, as many times as I've seen many horror movies from the 70s and 80s, I've probably seen the Texas Chainsaw Massacre the fewest times because it freaked mm -hmm. me out mm -hmm. the most. Mm -hmm. it, it literally just looked like I was watching a a documentary film of something that that happened oh, yeah. um, of bad things. <laughs> it feels like you're watching a home movie that you found in someone's garage somehow. Yeah. You're like, who do I tell about this? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and it's so deceptive, too, because this movie is at once 
gorgeously shot. Yeah. It's like brilliantly shot. But also when, when Carolyn saw it for the first time, she described it as it feels like it's shot through a layer of possum grease. And I <laughs> and I think that that's uh-huh. so that's so true. It's so true. You end this movie feeling filthy. Yes, you do. Absolutely. Like you got a lot, you got a lot of something on you. It's going to take a lot of showers to get off. Brad, why do you think this one lands as hard as it does for you? Well, I, I think that, and I'm, I have to cite my sources and one of them is, is Sarah when she talked about this movie in conjunction with Ed Gein on You're Wrong About. And, you know, she noted, which is true, that this movie, there's nothing supernatural about these people. Mm. Um, there's, there's no coming back from the dead. There's no, you know, I'm going to get chopped up or shot seven times and get up and walk. Like these are people like real people yeah, in a real place. They're so real and they're like, so of a place. Yes. And so yeah. <laughs> it is beautiful to look at, but, but part of its aesthetic also is there's no, I mean, it says that Toby Hooper wrote the musical score, but there is no musical score in this movie like it's not it's stark and that lends itself to the sort of found footage documentary you know there's not a lot of finesse i think we also have to note at the beginning that like this was a movie made by children yeah the cinematographer was 23 the director toby hooper like can't have been much older like they were all student actors and filmmakers or like just graduated filmmakers from the Austin area, I believe. I mean, Brad, your background on this is actually much deeper. So I would love to know your facts on this. But like little kids made this movie. It's it is astounding. And like the amount of craftsmanship and like artistry in it is easy to overlook because of how terrifying it is. But it's a big part of what makes it terrifying, I think. Right. Before we dive into those details, which I'm excited to dive into, Sarah. So often I'm like, for the one person who hasn't seen this movie, I imagine many of our listeners have not seen this movie. Yeah, this one is for us. Yeah, nor (laughs) will they see this movie. Like, let's dive in and give a Sarah synopsis. Oh my gosh. Okay, I should say also that one of the pieces of feedback I most love to hear is when people are like, I would never watch the scary horror movie, but I love listening to you summarize it to me. I would love to summarize horror movies for people who will never watch them. I've been doing it freelance for years with my friends. So, okay, the Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Like, it's not one of those titles where there isn't a payoff. It really happens. Although we all actually, well, okay, I'm I'm jumping ahead. But there's actually only one person (laughs) killed with a chainsaw, which is interesting. And then there's... Yeah, three people get trapped in a room. I noticed that this time I was like, in 10 minutes, just three people just get trapped in the same room. That's pretty yeah. cool that they pulled that off. Well, they keep <laughs> running into someone else's house. It makes you think. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they keep stressing this poor guy out. Anyway, sorry. So the Texas Chainsaw Massacre is about a group of five young adults in the summer of 1973. This movie was filmed around the Austin area and these kids feel like they're from the Austin area. They're like, we're super in Texas, but you know, in a different way, like we're groovy. There's two characters wearing giant bell bottoms and one of them has to be chased, which seems very stressful. And they are heading to the small town where the grandparents of two of the people lived, who are also kind of our main characters, Sally and her brother, Franklin. And Sally is going to be our final girl. And Franklin is 
a character in a wheelchair who was played by Paul Partain, who was a method actor. And because Franklin is annoying, Paul Partain would act annoying on set and everyone was happy when he died. <laughs> and I always have a really liked Franklin and I don't know why everyone finds him so insufferable because every group has one person who's complaining the whole time. And that was me for a long time. <laughs> so... Based on news reports that we started off the movie with, basically, they want to go to the graveyard where their grandparents were buried because there are reports that there has been grave robbing in this graveyard and someone has broken into mausoleums. There's a bunch of empty crypts. Someone has made sort of installation art with the corpses that they have unearthed. This person should move to Marfa. Did you notice that the the description of the scene that we hear on the radio is actually different from the scene that's laid out? Like yeah. in the description of the scene, they're like, they're like, there's one corpse and there was another corpse found in a ditch. And that's not true. That one corpse is straddling that corpse. Yeah. Well, maybe there's a third corpse and they're bad at counting. <laughs> this movie has like this wonderful exposition via sort of deadpan news radio that you yes. hear throughout the movie. And we're told at one point that the sheriff is like, we think the grave robbers are a band of highly organized West Coast jewel thieves. And it's like, that is exactly the kind of thing that a sheriff would say in the 70s. Like literally when Ted Bundy was active, there were respected cops who were like, we think it's related to the Manson family. And it's like, yeah, that thing that happened in L.A. five years ago. Why not? Can't be someone from the Northwest. So the authorities really don't know how to handle it is one of the sort of background things happening in this movie, but Sally and Franklin and their friends, Kirk and Pam and Jerry, have gone to check on whether their grandparents have been robbed right out of their graves. And it turns out everything's fine. And then they go to a service station where they're like, can we have some gas? And the guy's like, no, I look like Jimmy Carter and we're all out of gas. And they're like, we're going to go to the old Franklin place. And he's like, I don't think you should. <laughs> And they go anyway, obviously. I mean, this really, I think, is like the first slasher movie. Like Black Christmas is is a slasher in many ways. Psycho is kind of a proto slasher. Like you could talk about the whole genealogy there. But this is the one where like it's just so clear the sort of exoskeleton of what has to happen. We get these young adults to a remote location and then they start splitting off <laughs> into small groups. And the inciting incident for the massacre is that Kirk and Pam, who are a cute young couple, I think Kirk has kind of young Jeff Bridges energy. He sure does. Spot this other house that's like past the swimming hole next door to the Franklin house. And they're like, let's go look at that house and, and knock on the door and ask if they have any gas for the van and, you know, neighbors. <laughs> And so they are, they walk through the house. And honestly, one of my favorite sequences in this movie is Kirk and Pam walking toward this house because it looks so wholesome. It's a very pretty house, but like there's so many little things that are off or that are like obviously weird, but you're like, why would that be like they have like 30 cars and you're like, you know, we learn later that these are probably the cars of the people they killed. But there are tons of people who just have 30 cars in their yard, like, for later. In Maine, that is not a weird thing to see. Many parts of Oregon, too. Yeah. Are those victims' cars or are those future projects? They're for later cars. <laughs> and so Kirk and Pam are going to go up to this house. Kirk uh, knocks on the door. Nobody answers. And then 
he makes his big mistake, which is to open the door and walk in. And then we, we there's a steel door that he's looking at. We don't know what it opens to. And we hear this like, wee! Wee! And we're like, is there a pig back there? What's happening? And then the door slides open and out steps Leatherface, who really looks exactly like his name. He's got an apron and a leather face on his face. He's a big dude. He's a big Icelandic guy. <laughs> poet. <laughs> Icelandic poet. poet. It's true. <laughs> so, you know, and he's got a sledgehammer and Kirk runs toward the door before he sees Leatherface come out and Kirk kind of trips toward him and Leatherface just bashes him on the head. And we've also had some, this movie, every time I watch this movie, I inch a little closer to veganism <laughs> because we open this movie with kind of a light motif of like, oh, we're passing the cows waiting for slaughter. Oh, yeah. You know how they used to kill cows with a sledgehammer and now they use an air compression gun. But either way you do it, it's really terrifying. Look at those cows. And then we learn later that the family of killers in this movie are basically former slaughterhouse workers who were made redundant by the integration of machinery <laughs> into slaughterhouses which is like if that's not a metaphor for the american economy i don't know what is <laughs> can i ask a qu quick question i mean i've seen this movie a hundred times i still haven't parsed this yeah is the pig noise Leatherface? I think it's Leatherface. Yes, I lean towards that. But this is the first time I was watching it was like, was he because he has the hammer in hand? I was like, yeah, was he slaughtering a pig downstairs? You know what I think? I think that this whole movie is about economics. And I think that they are killing and barbecuing and selling as barbecue and eating human beings because they can't afford any other kind of meat. And I think that's what this whole movie is about. So I think this is just maybe the noise Leatherface face makes when he's stressed because yeah. he knows someone's out he's there. He's got a lot yeah. to be stressed about too. And we know that Gunnar Hansen learned how to make a pig noise because in the commentary oh, right. he talks about going to a friend's farm and poking pigs to study the noises they made. Right, right, right. Got you. Okay, so Kirk is dead. And then, I mean, I could go into a blow by blow, but I feel like this is like the part where like the movie starts like happening. Three people die pretty quickly and then we're left with Sally and her brother. Yes. Well, you could say it that way. <laughs> Three people die pretty quickly and then we're left with Sally and her brother. I will say that like we see... So Pam goes into the house looking for Kirk. She ends up in the conceptual bone art room. And that's an amazing sequence because we watch her become overwhelmed. And to me, it's extremely overwhelming. And then Leatherface grabs her and puts her on a hook. And we do not see the hook go into her body. Like this movie is amazing for like you, you basically never until the very last scene. And that one is a doozy. You don't see human flesh be cut well and then with the hitchhiker at the beginning you see two hands get cut with little knives in this movie and everything else is suggested everything else is like you see the weapon you see the person you see the reaction you don't actually see the wound happening because they couldn't afford it because they were little kids making a movie and to, I guess to me it's like important to note that partly because it's giving credit to the actors for what they were able to do. Pam is played by an actress named Terry McMinn. And like, I think you can feel that happening because she's acting it happening. Yeah. And so three people get killed pretty quick. And then it's Sally and Franklin. And so it's nighttime. It's very scary. They get the flashlight and are going down towards the house because they see a light over at the Frankenstein place and they're looking for the others. 
And then very suddenly, Leatherface appears and he gets Franklin. This is the only chainsaw killing that we have. And he's got a chainsaw and he chases Sally through this brush. And you might be watching it and be like, wow, like it's really impressive that for kind of a low budget grindhouse movie, they're able to sync the chainsaw sound so well in post. And it's like, well, it's just because they gave Gunnar Hansen a chainsaw and told him to turn it on and then run around with it. (laughs) And he almost died. (laughs) Like everyone involved in making this movie seems to have almost died. Yeah. Leatherface chases Sally to the gas station where they went to before, where the scary Jimmy Carter looking guy at first appears like he's going to help her. And then he ties her up and takes her back to the house because, of course, he's the older brother character. And at the barbecue slash gas place, she realizes that they are killing humans and selling them as meat. And this is kind of their only cash revenue. As a family. Because they don't have gas. They're bad at selling gas. Right. <laughs> so they just, they only have the barbecue business. It's almost as if selling gas might be a front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're just like, hey, we don't have any gas, but how about some human meat barbecue <laughs> now that you've already gotten off the highway? And so, I mean, at this point, like they shot this movie sequentially. And my understanding is that at this point, everyone was actually like on the verge of insanity Mm. because they shot this final sequence where basically they tie Sally to a chair and all have dinner as a family, even though by the time she like escapes, it's clearly morning. But like, I don't know, sometimes I don't get things done until way later than I planned. So, yeah. And they shot that sequence in like a 27 hour they just did it 27 hours straight and it was like one bazillion degrees in there because it was texas in the summer and i think one of the things about this movie that works for me and that i also find disturbing obviously and like it works in being so disturbing is that like the suffering feels real because people really did suffer to make this Mm -hmm. and you really see it at the end and so basically They're having dinner as a family. We see these generations of men. There's the hitchhiker, who I didn't even mention, but they picked up a scary hitchhiker at the beginning. And there's Leatherface, and there's the older brother. And there's Grandpa, who's 108 years old. And they're all bickering and sort of like insulting each other's contributions to the family business. And then they're like, we got to kill this lady, obviously. We don't like it, but we have to. You just have to do things in life. Doesn't mean you have to like him. It's an actual line. And (laughs) they're like, let's let grandpa kill her. Grandpa always was the best at killing. And so they give grandpa a hammer to bash her on the head with. And basically it keeps falling out of his hand. And while they're kind of arguing and trying to keep the hammer in grandpa's hand, she just sort of like seizes her moment and leaps away and leaps through a window for the second time in the movie and escapes in the back of a pickup truck and Leatherface chases her but he doesn't get her and then he dances with his chainsaw in the dawn light the end a film by Toby Hooper (laughs) Toby Hooper joint (laughs) Brad yes you said at the beginning why this movie sticks with you but like why is this a movie you love so much that you're wearing a Leatherface shirt and you're excited, you're excited and eager to talk about this. Like what's going on in this movie that isn't like chainsaw massacres for you? 
Well, uh, I think it has a lot to do with Leatherface, who is not, mm. again, he's not Jason, he's not Freddy, he's not Michael. This is a child who has clearly never been outside mm. of the, maybe never been outside the space around the structure of the home. And it's just obvious that he has significant intellectual disabilities. <laughs> He can't communicate with words verbally. It's pretty clear that he has spent his whole life watching people around him who are yelling at him and telling him what to do and how he should do it and why he should do it. And he's doing his best to pick it all up. But he's still I mean, if you look at the dinner scene in the end, the way he is with grandpa He's kissing him on the top of his head. Mm. He's patting the top of his head. He's freaked the fuck out from beginning to end because he's just not, he doesn't know where all these people are coming from. And it is very noteworthy that the only people, well, with the exception of Franklin, the only people that he kills in this movie are people who have broken into his home. Mm. And with Franklin, like, I imagine he's, like, there, he's very stressed because he's dealt with three intruders throughout the day. And he's not normally home alone. Right. So it's already a stressful day. And then it's dark. Like, if I were in my home in the country and I heard someone out near my front door shouting Jerry a million times, like, I'd be pretty scared. <laughs> well, whatever you read about this is sort of different about what the cook is supposed to be. An older brother, mm -hmm. a father, an uncle, a brother, uncle, whatever. Jimmy Carter's lost brother. Toby said brother in that commentary you sent. Well, and, and it makes sense, except that he says things like, look what your older brother did to the door. Right, right, right. You know, which is mm. not generally what you would say if you're siblings. Yeah, yeah. But but um I imagine that like he had one of those dads that lived forever and sired yeah, sure. many babies with different women. Like my dad. <laughs> A franchise dad. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. He yells at him, you know, when everybody's back in the house, including uh Sally, he yells at Leatherface, did, did you get everybody? Right. Did you get all like he's like he's beating him with a stick saying did you, and, and Leatherface is just still freaking out going, yeah, 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 yeah. they're all over the place here. Uh -huh. Look here. Let me point to the three pieces of, you know, Kirk that are over here. And, you know, like I'm doing everything that I think I'm supposed to be doing here. So upshot is I think Leatherface is a really sympathetic character. And I say that with. Complete sincerity. It's like a home alone situation, actually, because they <laughs> left this boy alone in the house and it happened on the day that they left the boy alone. It happened to be a day that were multiple B&Es at the house and he had to handle it. Yo, yes. <laughs> this is the same structure as home alone. And Kirk was like, there it is, Pam, the silver tuna. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> No, look, he, he, look, Texas, Texas is famous for its sort of his stand your ground laws. And that's all he was doing was standing his ground. You have a right to protect yourself in your own home. And what does he expect from these people except they're breaking into my house? My, one, one of my favorite things that we mentioned in this very enthusiastic text exchange we had in the lead up to this, this conversation is I love that one of the first things that we hear in that in the police report up front is that the police this is even before mm -hmm. we hear the elaborate jewel thief theory and this is such a thing you'd hear in maine 
is the police are <laughs> sure that it was like something from out of state that's responsible as if no Texan yeah. would would could possibly be responsible for all of these grave robbings it has to be some out of state force Texans are legendarily normal <laughs> right 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 everyone looks at Texas and they're like look at all those normal people I say this with love. I love Texas and I'm not normal. <laughs> I love it too, but it's a wild, it's a wild spot. We've talked about Leatherface for about a decade now, you and I, you know, following Brad's feelings of Leatherface, where are you at on uh, our sweet boy? <laughs> yeah, similarly. I mean, I let's talk for a second about the sort of classic slasher villains. There's <laughs> Michael Myers, who, when he's a little child, murders his sister for no apparent reason and then spends several other movies trying to murder his other sister for no apparent reason. Like, he's really just a blank wall, which is what that Shatner mask is all about. We have no idea what's going on there. Jason is a little bit clearer because, you know, there, you know he, he lost his mother. He apparently saw her being beheaded after he'd been living in the woods with her not knowing he was alive for 20 years. But, like, that's so awfully retconned that it's hard to connect with it emotionally and Leatherface is so clear like you know his entire life <laughs> in a sense if you watch this movie and you really to me you know watching him I'm just like I, I'm not convinced that there's any malice here like there could be but I haven't seen anything that proves that or demonstrates it like I feel like he could be someone who's just been trained from an early age and who maybe is going to suffer dire consequences if he doesn't go along with the family business because it's like once you start killing people for barbecue meat like you have to just keep killing people because if anyone finds out what you're doing you're kind of screwed and you know this is how abusive family dynamics work like it feels very I'm always blown away by this movie and I think like I guess watching it this most recent time, I was like, this feels almost French to me. This feels like yeah. a French movie <laughs> where like there's so much art. There's so much love of filmmaking here. The editing is so smart. I think the way they kind of had the group that in the commentary they call the victims kind of improvise together and be their characters together. It, it all feels it all feels incredibly real. And like, I just love a horror movie where everything is based on human situations and how scary that can get and how you don't need anything extra or supernatural to make it scary because life is scary and this is a way of connecting with that. So a couple of things stuck out to me this this time. Like one is Leatherface is different in that he has an inner life. Mm. There's like a real stress going on and just like this compounded stress. And when we see Leatherface in Leatherface's like off moments, he's either like kind of like beating him, like literally beating himself up because he's so stressed out or like trying to make the family happy. And like we talk so yeah. much about like codependent family dynamics in this show. And like Leatherface is like the most yeah. intense victim of the codependent family relationship here that's why you have to be like i gotta get some therapy because i don't want that to be the end game yeah. here <laughs> the other thing i noticed is that we were talking a lot in our mummy episode about the roots of the slasher in the various the universal monsters and then the the source material for the universal monster movies mm -hmm. and this has a lot in common with the mummy right where it's like you have these people coming through the area they're, they're in the mummy they're obviously Exploring, but like they go to this place where they're not supposed to be. They go into the place, mm -hmm. they unleash some evil, but that evil is really just like 
what was there and they've kind of disturbed it and now they're on the yeah. receiving end of its fury and you unleash trauma which is totally the like right. the story of like why colonialism can lead to ill effects for the colonizer occasionally <laughs> Right, 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 right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. These hip Austinites, they may further gentrify the area. <laughs> you know, also, he has three different leather faces, mm-hmm. right? Like, which is also important. And I'm sure I didn't know the first several times I watched this movie. But, you know, it's it's clear that he's he's morphing between man, woman, uh, you know, the butcher role, the cook in the kitchen role, the sitting at the table where he's kind of both. He still has the the sort of woman face on, but he has he's put his man suit <laughs> and tie on. Yeah, he has a nice little outfit on. This guy, this person is really trying to do the right thing. I mean, it's bizarre, but he's just really trying to do the right thing is the vibe that I get the entire time that I'm watching this movie. And just in that family, the right thing is murder. Uh-huh. And so on. And also something I never noticed, there's a, a line at the end where the hitchhiker, he's like demeaning the cook. And he's like, you're just a cook. Me and Leatherface do all the work. And I was just like, wait a minute. What work are you doing? Like, how is this family's livelihood dependent on you robbing graves and calling attention to yourself? What do you what do you normally do? And making elaborate crafts so that everyone can see what's going on. Are you selling those at the fair? Is there like a like blue ribbon for best corpse art? Although, if to be fair, the thing that the police believe it to be is like a lot this these like elaborate jewel robbers like if he is while at the graves taking jewelry that they can then pawn like that's some that's some nice work but we're not exploring okay. that that's not his shtick in this that makes sense i do like the read on the various leather faces and the various roles especially like again in the context of this extraordinarily abusive codependent family because like leather faces like being what everyone needs leather face to be at that moment like He's being a butcher. He's being a homemaker. And like, right. Yeah. Leatherface's dynamic. I don't even know like what Leatherface's gender is. That's not entirely clear. But like Leatherface's dynamic is it's entirely established by like what the two other screaming men in the movie need at that moment, which is resonant for many of us who are alive and have families. And we're raised by screaming men, possibly. Yes. Yeah. What do I have to do to make sure everything's okay and that these people stop fucking screaming? Exactly. This is on me. Maybe I'll get it right this time and no one will be mad. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then you slap your head like Leatherface. Yeah. So, but it was just what makes the dance at the end so great. Oh, man. Why, what's your read on that, Brad? So he's outside. It's been this extraordinary 24-hour period. He is still trying to figure out everything that's happening to him and all he's he's hurt, just hurt himself. Right. Because somebody came out of the blue and threw a wrench at him. It's catharsis. I think he's just yeah. throwing the shawl around and dancing around and then it just cuts off, which is a great way to end that movie because it's just as jarring as the beginning, you know, and I, I think the real beginning of the movie is when he slams that door shut. Oh, yeah. Mm. that's when you know shit is real. Like he just just comes right out, smacks the shit out of Kurt, drags him in and slams that door. And then there's just that little sound effect. And it's like, oh, wow. That metal door is fascinating to think about that they installed it. (laughs) 
it's such a unique setup. It's like a, it's just like a door at the end of a hall, normal, that also has a sliding metal door. And mm-hmm. it's, that's, that's, it's really scary to think about the premeditation that went into that room. Mm. And why, and I'm sure there's a functional reason for having that, that I don't know, but yeah. Well, to me, it had like a real vibe of factory process, you know, like it's a yeah. kind of a, you know, maybe it's just made up because it leads into the, it's also weird and it's kind of, I don't want to go all shining on everybody, but it's, you know, it does have that effect of where, right. where are things in this house? Like you, you, because you walk through that later on. I think it's Pam who walks through that door, right? It's open when she walks back in the house, I think. And then she goes and kind of takes a left and then she's right in the kitchen. And you're thinking, well, I thought this door went to some other place and not, and not the mm-hmm. kitchen. And not just this little tiny kitchen. It's just very disorienting and bizarre. So much of the this movie's power to terrify is done through art direction. Like the the scene where Pam, she goes into the house, she ends up in the room where they just have like... The floor is covered in teeth and chicken feathers. They have a bench made out of bones that they slowly pan over. And again, it's edited in a way where like it feels like you are having the experience of trying to take it all in because you have just fallen into this room. I've always known about it, but I was really blown away by just the sophistication of what they were able to do here. Because it's like I am one of those people who always like well actually is and is like, this movie actually isn't very gory. It only has like, what, like nine ounces of blood in it because they were trying to get a PG rating inexplicably. <laughs> <laughs> right. And just context for that is that th- when this movie came out, a lot of people don't realize that like a PG-13 rating didn't exist. And so you could right. get a PG or an R if you didn't have enough blood, but you just had abject fucking pandemonium. Sometimes you could squeak out a PG. <laughs> And nobody swears and you don't see any tits in this. Yeah, it's true. Recently, I was reading, I'm working on a case in my day job about false Mm. confessions and some of the things that that go into them. And I learned this term in reading one of the articles about it called pragmatic implication. And it's it's when you hear something, but you process it differently. So if you hear the burglar goes into a house... People often mistake that later on for the burglar actually Mm. broke into the house. Like if the burglar's in the house, because in their minds, they've processed, oh, the burglar had to have broken into the house to get into the house. And I think that's when you watch this movie, Mm. so much is, you know, left to your imagination and you fill it in, which is why so many people that in the title, of course. <laughs> but it's why so many people leave this movie thinking they have seen gore like has never been portrayed on a movie screen before. And it's just not it's just not true. You don't see a hook go through Pam. You don't see Leatherface chopping off Kirk's head. You don't see any of that. You you barely only see blood when they're spitting it out of their mouths when Franklin's being uh, killed, which is something else they said on the commentary, which is they only had a very because Toby Hooper has said, look, I know there's not a lot of blood in that movie because I know what budget we had. <laughs> I know, you, you know, I know exactly how much there was. And and so it's just it's just really good storytelling. I mean, Steven Spielberg gets a lot of 
you know, credit for this in Jaws mm-hmm. about how, you know, he, di- he didn't show a lot, which allowed you to fill in the blanks with your mind. Right. Um, and again, it's a, an expense thing. They're just like, well, this shark isn't working. You know, I, I, I think that that's much scarier than just seeing something. Oh, yeah. Just thinking about it because you have to think about it because you didn't you you don't see how Pam goes from a hook to a freezer. And, and I think that's what's scary about it. Right. That's what sort of sets it apart from other, you know, slasher movies that that came after it. I mean, Halloween is very good for doing that, mm-hmm. too. Right. Like there's not a lot of blood in Halloween. And John Carpenter rightfully deserves a lot of credit for how he how he did that. But, you know, the rest of them are all just it's the kills. Oh, yeah. You know, that's literally what what the movies are about is you go to see how spectacularly you're going to see somebody get killed this this time. And you don't really see a lot of that. And people love putting horror in the same bucket. But like, it's so funny to compare this to The Evil Dead, which was also a movie made by a bunch of actual children. No money. And is a movie that is just like a gore fest. Like it's like so delighted at just playing around with with practical effects. And they're they have a lot in common, but they're wildly different from each other in what they're concerned with doing. Yeah. And they even have the same kind of mummy movie template, too, which is you awaken something that, you know, your pampered life gives you no ability to imagine exists because you're a college student. The Evil Dead, less so than The Evil Dead 2, even though it is as gory as it is, there's something about its cartoonishness that lets it off the hook. Like it feels, yeah. I mean, it's made by children who are obsessed with like Roadrunner cartoons. Like that's how that's how that movie feels. Mm-hmm. This one has none of the actual gore, has a lot of the suggestion, but also the commitment to reminding you what you know in the back of your head, which is humans can be really fucking scary. Yeah. Yep. And you're like, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I could see that happening (laughs) well particularly when you think about the fact that there's a purpose to this slaughter it's economic yeah it's economic i mean it's not just uh, we're crazy and we're just out here killing people for the sake of killing people there's there's a practical purpose for this this is why leatherface malevolence can't be attributed to him any more than it could if he was working on a farm Mm. and he was slaughtering pigs Yeah. Because that's all he knows. That's what he knows. Or like when you're watching a nature documentary with your parents and you're like, it's so sad that that shark ate that seal. And your dad's like, well, if the shark didn't eat the seal, it would starve. Would that be good? And you're like, (laughs) it's the circle of life. One of the things that, Sarah, we've talked about a lot in the context of this movie that has been talked about in the context of this movie for a long time is really actually has a lot of MAGA vibes to it because it's there's a lot about mm-hmm. economic anxiety in this movie and what happens in the context of economic anxiety. A lot of the way that like MAGA has been talked about in the context of economic anxiety isn't exactly right on. There's just like a lot of straight up racism and nationalism. But can you both talk about what is happening with mechanization, economic anxiety, post-Vietnam stuff, apparently the Civil War. It's also post the War of Northern Aggression. Yes, totally. Yeah, as as we learned through Grandpa. Can you can you talk about all those themes? One of the fun little things about this movie is that Grandpa is played by an actor named John Dugan, who was 18 years old (laughs) at the time. And they were just like, whatever, we can't afford a real old man. And and they did really wonderful makeup on this kid. And the effect is that like you look at him and you're like, is he alive? Is he dead? Is he between? 
you're only made certain by like seeing his wife who's definitely dead right you're like oh yeah that's a dead person yeah, exactly that's a, yeah, that's <laughs> this guy a... is only somewhat dead <laughs> yeah he's the, he's the patriarch of the family of draculas yeah and you're like things have really gone downhill since grandma died and her little dog too <laughs> it's so fucked up <laughs> And one of the things Toby Hooper mentions in the commentary is that grandpa is supposed to be 108 years old. And I was like, oh, 1973 minus 108 equals 1865. And I'm no history buff, but that's the year the Civil War ended. (laughs) And I mean, I am really struck by how in the South people will talk about the war and they mean the Civil War. And they reference it as if they were alive at the time. It's, I don't know, I just, it's the kind of thing where people mention that and you're like, that's an exaggeration. And then you're like, oh yeah, they do. Like not everybody, obviously, but a surprising yeah. number of people it comes up. treat the Civil War as an actual living memory. And this movie feels very much <laughs> in that vein. Of, and I, like my kind of thoughts on this currently is that I feel like there's a lot of, like a lot of that bitterness comes from the fact that the North kind of screwed the South economically after the Civil War and the way you do someone who's lost a war with you. But that was like Northern white people and Southern white people should just be angry at Northern white people who condescend to them and not be racist because it's not relevant. (laughs) Yeah, that's just I feel like this movie, you see these people and you get the sense that like these are people who have been marginalized by recent economic developments because i think things have been harder for the working like things have never been great for the working class in america but i think the 70s were a very rough decade on most people economically and especially the working class there's this this theme of people being forced out of an industry that always took care of them before by technological advances and this idea that grandpa you know he used to be this wonder he used to be the best killer there was and he was trained to be a killer because that was something that you could be rewarded for being good at because someone needed you to do it. And then there comes a time when no one needs you to kill anymore and then you're redundant. And then what are you going to do? You have to kill freelance, apparently. Mm -hmm. And this is also 1973. We're having the Vietnam War at this point. And that's, you know, something that always is front of mind for me when I'm watching this movie. Like, I, I think that I would, this movie would be pretty good to show someone you were trying to get to stop eating meat because it's essentially the experience of watching human beings become meat realize that someone is looking at them and seeing future meat and that's war we hear that dialogue happen when the when the hitchhiker is picked up and the hitchhiker is talking about how the optimal way to kill which is the way before things were industrialized and because when things got industrialized people started losing jobs and we hear pam talking about how no one should be eating meat like eating meat is gross etc cetera, etc cetera. and then hilariously pam with your astrology hilariously they pick up barbecue that they don't know is humans that they are eating at some point which i think is a very funny funny aside before they are eventually turned into the meat like there's a lot of great meat stuff going on in this movie (laughs) this whole movie is meat yeah (laughs) yeah i think part of it also is the whole thing from beginning to end is about sort of the meat and like even in the end that the truck driver the hero who is a black man by the way drives over the hitchhiker and saves sally hardesty with a cattle truck 
It's just from beginning to end. It's all about meat. I never noticed that before. That's so great. You know, and I don't know. I'm sure smarter people than I am would be able to sort of fit in what is a cattle truck and sort of the progression of the meat manufacturing and processing industry. Mm. And like, where does that come Mm. in? But it just doesn't seem like it doesn't seem like all of that is just a coincidence. Right. One of the things I love about film analysis is that like so much work goes into little choices. Like a lot of things happen accidentally or just like, yeah, that was the cheapest warehouse or whatever. But like there's a scene where Franklin is talking about how cattle slaughter works. And then we see footage of cows just hanging out at the facility. And it's like, well, yeah, you needed to send a second unit to get B-roll of that or whatever industry term is correct. So like a day or two of work went into that choice. So it had to matter to you. Whereas if you're analyzing a painting, you're like, maybe you just felt like putting a yellow squiggle there. I don't know. You know, the other thing that I think makes this scary is that and I think puts it in the context of what was happening in the in the country and in Texas at the time is, you know, these are real people. They live next door. You know, I mean, I know we're out in the country, but these are, you know, obviously the homestead where Sally and Franklin's family had once lived is not very far from where Mm -hmm. Leatherface's family lives in that property. And you know, there are, I think this movie came out, yeah, Vietnam obviously weighs heavy. Watergate, uh, you know, I know Toby Hooper said in a number of interviews, it was heating up at that time and mm. it had, you know, some influence on it. But also Charles Manson's family had, because uh, this is a family film, as we've discussed, um, you know, Charles Manson's family. Talking about codependency. <laughs> right, right. Had gone out and done what they did. And there's, and I read something that Toby Hooper was at the University of Texas when the guy whose name is escaping me right now got on the tower and yeah, yeah shot everybody. He was like literally yeah, there boy. on campus while the shots were going off. And so he's you know, familiar and the filmmakers are familiar with, we've moved into an extremely different United States of of America at this point. And that's, you know, I think went into this movie is this is, Mm. this is the country we live in now. Yeah. Or like, let's like haul out the corpses and look at them because. Right. Yeah. Which I feel like resonates so strongly with today because I, my feeling today is like, we've always been this disgusting. It's just that I didn't know before. Right. That's why there are MAGA vibes here. It's not, MAGA's Mm -hmm. always been there. You know, Donald Trump did not create racism (laughs) and he did not create awfulness. Right. And and he did not create, you know, economic anxiety or the exploitation of economic anxiety for personal gain. I mean, it's always been there and always will be there because the people will always be carving each other up into winners and losers. Mm. And I think these these people clearly believe they have been made losers. Mm. They did, you know, what they were supposed to do. And now this industry has moved on without them. And so they will do what is the only thing they know how to do. And they will just start doing it with human beings. Instead of maybe even the human beings they perceive, you know, if there even is a motive anywhere, maybe it's the human beings they they blame for what happened to them. I mean, something funny about this movie is that it feels like it's shot in like rural, rural, rural America. And yet it's like right outside Austin to the point that I think it's shot in an Mm -hmm. area that now is like just part of Austin. 
And you can totally feel that college town friction in this. That feels like such a part of, Mm -hmm. you know, who these kids are and why they're so oblivious to like how different the world can be not that far from home. And that's such an interesting thing about Austin generally is you can drive 15 minutes out and be in rural Texas. I mean, that divide is everywhere, as you're saying, Sarah, where there is a where there is a college town or there is an urban population in Maine, in Maine, for example, a lot of people in Portland have honestly are absolutely perplexed about how anyone else in Maine has different views than they do in Portland. And it's like, you all you have to do is drive 10 miles, like, and talk to, and just talk to anybody, like, and you'll find out why and how they have that. But it's such an isolated, it's such an isolated area that just driving a handful of miles out and then maybe going down the, right. uh, another road, you're really in like the seat, the seedy underbelly of. <laughs> also, everyone in Maine has a chainsaw, right? Everyone in Maine has a chance. You have to to prepare yourself. Yeah. North Carolina is the same way, right? I mean, you know, we have pockets that are the Research Triangle Park, Raleigh, Durham, Chapel Hill, you know, and then you drive 15, 20 minutes, maybe 30 minutes, and you are in fundamentally different areas. You know, that's why it's so famously a purple Mm. state. (laughs) Right. Because, you know, you just have, you, you just have a lot of, uh, extremes and, and, you know, urban rural divides exist everywhere. I've always been kind of fascinated by, you know, Franklin is somebody we need to talk about. Oh, yeah. Because I, Franklin seems to me to almost be between those two. Yeah. Worlds, right. Like I, I agree that the, the rest of the kids in the van or young people in the van have this sort of college vibe. He's the final girl for the first half of the movie. And then he kind of passes the baton. He's the only one that has an accent, too. That's true. Yes. And it's legit. It, it's not an awful, this has been put on for a movie accent. And and he, for the first part of the movie, is the only one who's noticing things, right? Like, yeah. knows when he gets out of the van and the blood's on the, you know, he sees the thing hanging in the, you know, uh, doorway of the homestead. It's like he's, but but he is very unsympathetically portrayed in this movie like and i i don't really understand that you know why why you would make the the disabled person who was in a wheelchair make him the complainer that everybody wants to kick out of the the scene it's just it's it's just kind of a weird thing that i've never really Mm. read that much of like what what thinking went into to the development of that character it seems by the way the commentary is that like all of the overall insufferability of that character is not necessarily in the writing of the character. It was mm. in the portrayal of the character. And like even like it's, it sounds like he was just played like I understand Franklin's plight. Like Franklin can't do any of the things that everyone else is doing. Although he was like he was brought under the pretense that it was going to be fun for him. It was not fun for him. He kind of realizes Sally doesn't necessarily want him there. But like he's played it seems like it's so effectively whiny as a character that even if it's sympathetic, like you just want it to stop by the 52nd minute into the movie where it does stop. Yes. Yes. (laughs) Yeah. And what's amazing is the minute his whining stops, her screaming starts (laughs) (laughs) and never ends, never ends until, you know, until literally the movie is over Marilyn Burns screams for like 35 minutes or however the rest of the the movie is and that's 
that's also not lost on me mm. is that, you know, she's been sort of subliminally complaining the whole time about his whininess. <laughs> and then she she shifts right now. Understandably, she has a bit. I don't know. I don't want to speak for Franklin. She has a little bit more of an excuse, I think, for screaming than, than he might have had for his 52 minutes of whining. But but still. You know, I don't know what to think of the the cook, his bizarre back and forth between almost seeming like he wants to get this over as quickly as possible for her. Wait, for example, when he's taking her back to the house after he's thrown burlap over her and beaten the shit out of her with a, with a broomstick, he's like, don't worry, this will all be over soon, it's okay, but at the same time, he's like... <laughs> stabbing her and poking her with the with the broomstick it's just a really weird almost like impulsively yes yes and saying contradictory things as he's doing it too he's like i hope you're comfortable poke poke right and he consistently while they're eating is like it's gonna be over fast like grandpa's really good at this it's gonna be over like i'm sorry like we don't necessarily want to do this which is really interesting what's going on there what is the relationship between these people like what is the tension yeah, clearly the cook is is the closest person in this the surviving members of this family to a societally functional human right. being. Like he's 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 running a business, right? At least it, by all outward appearances, he seems to be running a business. You know, he interacts with people. You know, that's why the initial interactions between him and the kids in the van don't necessarily send flags off for you, mm -hmm. right? Because he's just being, oh, y'all probably shouldn't go out there and you shouldn't go on people's property. Oh, you do know those folks? Okay, well, then, you know, whatever. I, I guess by virtue of that, he appears to be the most powerful person mm. in the family, not physically, but mentally, even though, you know, the hitchhiker talks back to him. The hitchhiker totally passes as like a, a freaked out hippie who's on too much speed and acid or whatever. Like he feels very of this time and Leatherface is the brawn. But this guy is like, he can do the shopping. He can be in the world. Yeah, he feels like the Manson side of the hippies. Because he's not killing himself. He's running the killing business. Yes. Yeah. And I don't know what I don't know what that makes him. And it, it also, where the women are is one of the most mysterious questions about mm -hmm. and where they figured, figured into this family. I mean, I, I, I know grandma is, I guess grandma is up in the room with grandpa, but there's just no indication of where women fit into this family ever before. I feel like this movie is also a depiction of like what happens to families when there are no women around and it's like well it's not great right although there's this weird <laughs> dinner situation right like like the hitchhiker at the very beginning is in, and i think it's sincere he's he's inviting these i mean he probably he probably wants to kill him i feel like it's sincere too honestly i was wondering about that and i was like is it is it really naive of me to think he's actually asking them to come to dinner with his family not to murder them because i really feel like i think he's trying to make friends yeah me too yeah he very much seems like he is and it and it turns when he and you can see it turn when, when they start talking about no the air the anton chagor weapon the the, the air gun yeah. is 
is the best way to go. And he just gets really deeply mm. offended by it and then starts behaving. But, you know, he, he would have, even if he was going to kill him, it's the same as with Sally. They didn't just kill her. Mm-hmm. They want to have a dinner with her. It's it's like a very dark retelling of Peter Pan. <laughs> yeah, it really is. I mean, we have a woman, so we're just going to tie her to the chair and sit her at the end of the table, put a plate of food in front of her, and then play out like she's somehow in, a member of this family and then kill her? And they gave her a fork, too. It's so funny. Like, she has a fork. She has a... She has a mason jar. These people are drinking out of mason jars like 30 years before that was trendy. Mm-hmm. And they've got they gave her a beverage and like her hands are tied, but they gave her silverware. Yeah, it's like it's fantastically weird. You're like, I feel like this is a a bizarre sign of respect for her as like a sacrificial victim or something like you feel like Leatherface really plays it fast and loose. And when they have the whole family together, they like to be more ceremonial. And their weird cannibalism. <laughs> there are, yeah, there are no women, right? There are no women in this family, and to, and and Sally's gonna die. They're like, well, we have to kill her, and it's not like they're gonna. It's not like they they'd have adopted Jerry. It's not like if Jerry was. Really, like, <laughs> they don't need Jerry. <laughs> Imagine Jerry, that Harold Ramis looking dude. Even watching this movie, I was like, you know. I don't really care about Jerry. He's giving off big the guy in squirm energy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not. Uh, we don't. Jerry is not my favorite either. You're not like, oh, no, they got Jerry. Yeah, to the point where like, the again, the only the only representation of women in this family is like a corpse that's sitting upstairs with grandpa and then Leatherface as woman character. It's like a Shakespearean cast. <laughs> <laughs> and in the movie itself unlike a lot of you know slashers that would come after it there's no sexualization really of what even the shot of pam like walking the very famous shot of her walking from the from the swing up to the house yeah you know there's no nudity there's no nobody has a bra but in a very 1970s way where you're like why would you be wearing a bra today (laughs) Yeah, there's no like lascivious libido in this movie. No, there's no suggestion that they would ever contemplate, you know, any kind of sexual assault of any of the, you know, it's it's. I was thinking about this today. I was like, who as among the slasher villains are interested in sex? Because like there's something really interesting about how and obviously the rape revenge movie really flourishes in the 70s. So we have a whole genre concerned with kind of taking sexual violence directed at women as a major plot contrivance. But slasher movies are so interesting for telling young women like, oh, yeah, someone wants to kill you and it's because you're sexual, but they don't want to assault you as they kill you. And it's like, really? I feel like the real life fear is that. But in this, it's like a supernatural entity who kills me because I have sex with someone else. Or take my top off. Right. It's very strange. There's some like, I don't know. I just find that fascinating. It's not a lot about, well, I mean, I know Sally is a woman, but it's just, it just seems like there's a lot of like. There's no time for sex. They don't even get to go swimming, you know? Yeah. Right, right. We don't. And I was going to say it's, it's largely a sausage fest (laughs) until. Literally. I realized that that would be a terrible double entendre, which it, which it was. (laughs) We should talk specifically for a sec about the commentary, which we all listen to and which I think is wonderful. 
and also has this weird element that we hear more and more over time where they're like, yeah, we really tortured Marilyn Burns, who played Sally. And then they're like giggling about it the whole time. I know. And that puts into context, like one of the things I do want to clarify about the thing that we're saying that there's no sexual menace in the movie is like there still is like right. menacing men against women outnumbered, terrifying situation for sure. And it's not to say that that's not the mm-hmm. thing, but like to your point, Brad, and to your point, Sarah, in the conversations we have beforehand, as Sarah is saying now, like there's like some dudes who are really giggling about how scared the women were on set. And it's not great. And how much they suffered. And just like and like everyone was suffering making this movie because it was so hot. They had no money. Gunnar Hansen, who played Leatherface, had to wear the same shirt for four weeks because they were afraid to wash it because it had been dyed. Oh, that's so gross. So gross. So gross. So gross. Like, I would love to make horror movies. It's one of my goals as a person. And one of the things I always think about is, like, how can you do something? Like, I think that you can facilitate doing something really extreme and, like, take your performers to an intense place in a way that's safe for everybody. Because I think performers want to perform... You can trust actors to, like, inhabit a moment without forcing them to literally live some approximation of it. And, like, union breaks are good. (laughs) (laughs) And so with that as the context, like, again, they had this 27-hour shoot for the final sequence in this movie. And one of the moments that they talk about as part of that sequence of events is that they had a moment where... Leatherface is supposed to cut Sally's finger so that Grandpa can, like, suckle her blood from her. Yeah. Oh yeah. It's so, yeah, so yeah. gross. That actually is the most sexual thing that happens here. It's very violating. Yeah. One of their special effects was that they had a knife with like a blood, a tube behind it where the fake blood was going to come out so they could do a blood effect and they couldn't get it to work. And so Gunnar Hansen, Leatherface actor without telling anybody was just like, fuck it. I'll just cut Marilyn's finger for real. Oh, that's bold. And he did. And she was like freaked out and screaming, but nobody noticed because that was what she was supposed to be doing. And like, I realize that compared to the scope of the movie, that's a very small act of like human suffering to metabolize as something that really had to happen. But it's still too much. Well, because it wasn't her choice. Right. Yeah. It's a completely different picture if he's like, hey. This is kind of nuts, but would you be comfortable with me just cutting your finger and giving you a very light wound so we can just get on with it and finish? Like, that would be completely different. You're right. Or if she came up with it on her own, you know, like, it's just, it's just, it's not into, to do it is lame enough. To joke about it years later is really kind of puts an exclamation point on how lame it was. Right. Yeah. To not get like too into the politics of of movie making, but like the overall work conditions, not optimal, not a union set for sure. You think? The credits of this movie take like a solid 35 seconds to go by. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, maybe. Did you notice? I I noticed this for the first time. The script girl is the same person as the stunt person. Oh, that's amazing. None of this is meant to excuse it, but it is to it is to celebrate working conditions that are well thought through enough to create the space yes. for a Gunner Hansen to have the time to ask a to ask a Marilyn Burns, you know, because it sounds like again, like by the time that they were shooting this part, everyone had totally lost their minds because again, they're wearing mm-hmm. the same clothes because humans need to sleep. 
like kind of a lot. <laughs> Humans need to sleep. It was it was the high heat in Austin. And like, yeah, whoever was overseeing this production, largely Toby Hooper, probably shouldn't have put everyone through what they were put through. And also we end up seeing the fruits of that on screen in a really fascinating way, in a way that can be appreciated, but like not uh, approved. Oh yeah. Right. And I, and that is like that weird power and that feeling you have when watching it. I always feel I'm just like, I like, despite how art of filmmaking this is, I still feel like I'm watching a snuff film. Yeah. Oh yeah. And just because you're watching a bunch of people completely at wit's end. And Gunnar Hansen also said in the commentary, there was a moment where he was just like, I forgot that I was acting <laughs> and I thought that I just was Leatherface. Yeah, I bet. You know, a lot of them have said, and including Marilyn Burns has said, you know, I, I wasn't acting at that point. Yeah. You know, like by, by the end, when I'm in the back of that truck, <laughs> you know, I'm like, please just let this be it. Just go, yeah. just go. I think she's, I think she's screaming go. And she may be realistically yeah. saying, just drive, just drive me away from this. Movie. <laughs> and instead of Leatherface chasing her, it's Toby Hooper chasing her with like clapper board. As I understand it, like the big travesty after this is all these people went through this and like no one made any money. You know, like, that's, that sort of makes it even worse is they were all, effectively guaranteed that they would get a percentage of the profits from the movie. They didn't learn this till they got their first profit participation checks, which were very small. And then they learned that the lawyers had created and the financers had created this scenario where there was a company that was going to get half of, you know, what the profits were supposed to be. And then there was going to be a percentage of that. Now that's evil. Right. I mean, so, so the upshot being that this handful of people that really created this movie, you know, that this, that is, we're here talking about 47 years later, it is, didn't really get much money out. In fact, you, you know, if you look at some of the documentaries on like the Blu-ray and anniversary, it's like, you know, a couple of the actors are just, they didn't really end up acting much after that. Yeah. The hitchhiker's really angry about it. I know that hitchhiker's not, a, not happy. Mm. Yeah. And I, and understandably, this is why I don't ever knock people who go to comic cons and charge. Oh no. $15, $25, whatever you want to charge for a, a, a fit picture or an autograph or whatever, because I, that's going to the person who has made your life better. <laughs> it's more likely than not that a person you saw in a movie that was meaningful to you didn't get paid enough or they got screwed. Mm -hmm. Like everyone assumes that because someone was in a movie, like they made a lot of money and it's like, there's a stronger chance than not that that person didn't get what they should have and, and they're doing anything they can now to try to make a living off that opportunity. Like, why is this a movie that brings you joy? Mm. So I saw this movie for the first time when I was 15. I still remember it as like just one of the most intense experiences I've ever had with any kind of piece of media in my life. I was riveted. I was terrified. I remember having that feeling of like, we are humans and humans are fragile and bodies are meat. You know, one of my beliefs is that horror movies draw adolescents specifically because when you're an adolescent, you don't necessarily know that your body is fragile and going to decay. Because at this point, it's really, you know, for a lot of people, it's really just done a series of wonderful things and been consistently improving this whole time. And you haven't necessarily gotten to the part where 
it starts to degrade and you start to feel fragile. And I think it's important to remind yourself of your own fragility by watching people who look like you get massacred. There are many reasons why I think teens are drawn to these stories. I think a lot of them are wholesome, and I think that's one of them. Certainly, it was important to me in that way. It remains to me the platonic ideal of a horror movie. Like, I love everything about it. I think the bad guys in it are so scary, and yet I feel like I understand them. I feel like I understand how they got to be the way that they are by degrees, and I feel like they're all as we've talked about through this episode, incredibly human. A piece of art that feels perfect to me brings me great joy. And I honestly think this is a perfect movie by my standards. It's perfection. And it just makes me happy the way that Hannibal Lecter feels happy when he listens to Bach. <laughs> <laughs> the more time goes by in my life, I really love watching Leatherface. I really identify... <laughs> As I've moved through the world and have plenty of times in my life been extremely overwhelmed by things, extremely anxious, extremely stressed, extremely motivated to make people around me happy. Yeah. This is the pure representation of that. And it just doesn't get any purer than when he's then, uh, you know, than Jerry. So so we've had Kirk. We've had Pam. Now we got Jerry. <laughs> And he just finally is like, fuck, man, I've just got to go. I, I, I've just got to go sit down. It's so good. <laughs> He's not like sharpening a knife. He's just sitting down to fucking get it, get it out. Right. Like, <laughs> like how many more of them are there? Where, where are they going to show up? It's just a perfect encapsulation of so many moments in my life where I've done the same thing. I've just sat down and rocked back and forth. And, or you're like, everyone has to leave this party yeah. that I am having at my house so that I can go sit with my bones. I want to emphasize to anyone who's like, I can't watch this movie because it's a horror movie, whatever. It, don't watch it if you if you feel squeamish with that. Yeah. Like, seriously, if horror movies are too much, then this is like, no. will be way too much. Yeah. This is not the one. Watch Ready or Not. Do you, well, you absolutely watch Ready or Not, but do know that this is a beautiful portrait of what it's like to be anxious in a family situation, in a being bothered when you're not ready to be bothered situation. <laughs> yes. It is a gorgeous, gorgeous portrait of that. I, I think this movie captured terror in a way that really no other movie mm -hmm. I've seen does. Yeah, like I cannot watch this movie without my heart being in my throat, and I've seen it probably at least 20 times. And by being an acceptable face, I love horror about how like the clearly terrifying out of touch with reality people are not the scariest. It's the people that can pass and who are like, I'm a normal man. It's not exactly clear who the father is in this movie. It might be the cook, but according at least to the director, it's the older brother. The father could be the meat industry. We don't know. Well, let's just say, so we know that grandpa is the patriarch, at least. Who is the daddy as far as you're concerned? I'm going to go first. Yes. Black Maria. Mm -hmm. Is it Black Maria? Is that the name of the truck? It might it be Black Mariah? Is it Mariah or Maria? In the commentary, they call it both. They call the truck Black Maria. And then they're like, isn't that named after Black Mariah Edison's film studio? Oh, shoot. Great. Showed the execution of Topsy. I desperately want to hear a ballad of the Black Maria and hear from the perspective of the of the truck driver. 
It would be the best. But I love, I love, love, love. We've only touched on this in passing, but I love that like we see this truck driver mm-hmm. come in. This truck driver is like a sweaty, just totally not action hero kind of person. It's just a person who is driving a truck. And like it is about six in the morning. Yeah, he is probably fin- he's probably been driving all night at this point. And immediately comes to the aid as a black man that is the savior in this movie by throwing a wrench at Leatherface. It hits Leatherface in the face and then just runs. This movie is a parable about what Texas is going to become if only white people are in charge. (laughs) But I love Black Maria. He literally mows down the hitchhiker, like her tormentor, and then he throws this wrench. But his ability to think very quickly, particularly after driving all night, yes. presumably, um, in his job is extraordinary. He deserves all the flowers that Sally doesn't get, which she should get a lot of <laughs> because she made it. But he's definitely, in the annals of horror movies, the probably the greatest hero. <laughs> Who's yours? Yeah, it might be Grandpa. Just because there's a lot of reference to him and it seems like he's revered and it seems like, you know, he's I mean, so I guess, yes, he's the patriarch. But, you know, it's some life, uh, you know, maybe he was a lot more than that. To me, the daddy is Marilyn Burns, because like you don't have this movie without her. My understanding is that she signed on to do something she knew would be difficult and grueling and then became difficult in ways that she did not sign on for or anticipate or consent to. And it really didn't hit me until listening to it for this episode, how dismissive they are of her. I feel like it kind of annoys me that like, maybe they invited her and she didn't want to come who knows, but I'm like, you know, you should really do, they should have done a commentary track with Marilyn Burns. Like she is the movie in many ways. It's hard to, for me to articulate what it is about her performance. It's a negative commentary on the, the conditions they were filming under that you were watching someone actually survive something. And that's part of the power. But I also think that that doesn't give full credit to her as a performer. Like, I think that like you can make someone suffer and you won't end up with art. She did something incredible in this movie. And when on inauguration day, the only thing I could think of that expressed my feelings was her at the end of this movie covered in blood sitting in a pickup truck bed and like screaming and laughing hysterically. Cause you, I, I remember just waking up in this mood of like, I'm just, it's not quite a laugh. It's not quite a scream. It's just both. <laughs> and she has Joe Biden driving her away. <laughs> yeah. All right, everybody. Thank you so much hanging out with us that was a blast thank you to bradley bannon for being a part of this episode talking about one of our favorite movies thank you so much to carolyn kendrick who produces each of these episodes makes all the episodes sound so great music director all of the above just a all-around wonderful person you can find carolyn at carolynkendrick.com we are going to release a collection of songs from the show uh, it'll be out September. Very, very excited for that. Look for events related to that. I don't know if they're going to be online. I don't know if they're going to be in person. Who knows? There's going to be stuff surrounding that. So keep an eye out for that. Thank you so much to Fresh Lash, who provides the beats for the show. Thank you to you for listening to You Are Good. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter. Follow me on TikTok. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash you are good. Find your bonus episodes there. And I think... I think that's it. I think that's all you need to know for right now, isn't it? 
All right, everybody. Have a wonderful, wonderful time. We appreciate you. You are good.